The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. There is a question that throughout our life, in different seasons, at different ages, that we will either knowingly or unknowingly have to wrestle with. The question is, who are you? It's a question about our identity. And and throughout our life, we'll find a number of different ways to try to answer this question. It's the idea that we, we need to try to understand who are we? What makes you, you? How do you define yourself? Where where does your value come from? Now, throughout our life, we'll look for a number of different ways to try to answer that question. At times, we we will look to people's words to become the very thing that defines us. And so a group of people said this about me. Therefore, if they say that about me, that must be who I am. That if my parents said this about me, my friends said this about me, but some people online said this about me, and therefore those things become the way I now see myself. And sometimes if enough people say the same thing, I start to believe that must be what defines me. Others of us, what we'll do is we will attach our identity to our relationships, that we'll look to the people in our lives. And so if the relationships are good, we'll feel good about our identity. If relationships are struggling, we'll feel poorly about our identity. And so we'll look to our relationship with our spouse. When things go well, we see ourselves well. When things are going poorly, we don't see ourselves nearly as well. That, or our relationship with our parents. Or we'll look to a group of friends. And so if I have the friends I want, then, then that says something good about my identity. But if I don't have the friends, or if the group of friends I have say, say things about me that I don't like, well then, then the value I feel like I have, I feel like I'm losing my worth. Others of us will try to answer that question by what we do. And you, and you probably even encountered this kind of conversation before. You, you introduce yourself to somebody, and what is the first thing they ask? What do you do? Why? Because immediately following our, an introduction to our name, the very next thing that defines who we are is the thing that we do. And, and I do this. I'll say, I'll say I'm RJ. I'm a, I'm a pastor. I'm a dad. I'm a husband. And those things that I do in my daily responsibilities become the thing that makes me me. Now again, those are important responsibilities, but often what we do is we find our worth, our identity gets wrapped up in all of those things. Which becomes challenging because what if those things don't start to go the way you thought they should go? Or what if you lose your job and your identity was wrapped up in your job? Or what if you eventually want to retire from your job, but the way you saw yourself was your job? Then suddenly those things are threatened. And we do this all the time. I, I'm an engineer. I'm a, I'm a designer. I'm a stay-at-home mom. And so we let those things be the thing that makes us us. Others of us have been through terrible seasons. Suffering or circumstances or sickness that have, have been awful in our life. And those have shaped us in a, a number of different ways. But what often will happen in those moments is we'll, we'll move beyond those moments. And then we look back and we can't identify ourselves apart from those things. That those things that happened to us, that, that were done to us, that we struggled through. That those things will be the very thing that defines us. Now, what's important to understand, all of these things shape us. 
the words people say, the relationships we have, the work we do, the suffering that we go through, all of those shape us and form us into the people we become, but they do not define who we are. In the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul is trying to help us answer that question. He's trying to help us understand where our identity should be found. And so he does that not by pointing to words, not by pointing to relationships, not by pointing to our work, not by pointing to our circumstances, but he points to something outside of you. Because what he knows is if, it's, if, if your identity is not found in you, if it's attached to some, someone outside of you, your identity is far more secure. See, the book of Ephesians points us to the identity-forming work of Jesus. That Jesus makes you who you are. That Jesus calls you who you are. That Jesus says who you are. And so the book of Ephesians, what Paul does is he unpacks several different concepts and ideas to help you understand this is who you are, not because of what you've done, not because of what people said, but because of what Christ has done on your behalf. Last week we began the series in Ephesians chapter 1. And what Paul reminds us in Ephesians chapter 1 is, that, is the identity question. It's I am chosen. That God from eternity chose you. You didn't choose him, he chose you. That's who you are. It's what God did, not what you did. In Ephesians chapter 2, which we're going to unpack today, what God does, is, what Paul does is he, is he, he answers that question for us by saying, I am saved. And your saving, your rescue doesn't come from you, it comes from God. And so Paul, throughout Ephesians, will work through this and progress through this saying, here is who you are. You're saved, you're chosen, you're gifted. If you could, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 10 today. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,818. Now, when Paul writes this letter, he writes it to a church in Ephesus, a church that he started as a missionary. And this church that he started is in a religiously diverse area. There are Jews, there are Christians, there are a variety of pagan religions. And what, what, he, what happens in this area is that because of the variety of religious voices, is there are all these competing ideas. All these competing voices, these competing narratives that are trying to say something different than what Paul's trying to say. It's, it's as though Paul is trying to point to the identity-forming work of Jesus, and all these other religious ideas are pointing to other ways that you can find your identity. And what Paul, Paul understands, he says, but there's only one secure way, and so he's trying to go bring a different voice, a different message, to say here is where the hope is found. Now, what's interesting about the way that Paul does this is in Ephesians, especially in Ephesians chapter 2, he speaks with great clarity and simplicity the message of this gospel. And what Paul understands in this religiously diverse culture is that the thing that that culture needs most is Jesus. See, he doesn't see his job as a missionary in that culture as going to war against the culture. He he sees his job as a missionary is to bring Jesus to that culture. His job as a missionary to his church and as his church witnesses to the culture around him is that their primary responsibility is just bring Jesus to them and Jesus will take care of the rest. 
And so Paul writes this message to the church. He's writing it to a group of Christians, but he's knowing it. While he's writing it, he knows that Jesus isn't just for those inside the church. He's for those on the outside too. And that the thing that the people outside the church need is the same thing that the people on the inside need. Because everybody, whether you're a Christian or not, you need to hear the same message that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. And so Paul, as a missionary, goes into that culture writing these words to his church family saying, Here is what you need. And here is what they need. And what we are called to be a witness to. See, this is significant because I think what many of us will do as Christians is we treat the message that Paul writes here in Ephesians chapter 2 as though it's just for somebody else. But what Paul understands is that Jesus exists for those outside the church and for those inside the church. Which means if you want nothing to do with Jesus, if you're new to a relationship with Jesus, or if you've been a Christian your entire life, the thing that you need, the message you need to hear is the same thing. That there's not a message for outsiders and a message for insiders. No, there's a message for sinners, which includes all of us. That, that the message of the gospel isn't just what gets you in, it grows you, it sustains you. And so Paul shares this understanding, the thing the world needs most is Jesus. And so this group of people who are receiving this letter, they've heard these ideas. These aren't new ideas. They believe in Jesus. They, they've heard of the death and resurrection of Jesus. They've heard of grace and forgiveness and love. None of these are new ideas. But he knows that even once you've been introduced to those ideas, that you don't move beyond them. You just move deeper into them. And so he shares that with them because what they need as Christians is to hear the hope that he wants all people to have. And so in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul writes these words. I'll begin in verse 1. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See, Paul knows this is what people need. That this is the message that the church needs. This is the message that the culture around that church needs. And for us as Christians today, in a religiously diverse world, with all these competing voices and ideas that are trying to say, here is where you should find your worth and identity, these words are just as true today as they ever were. Because the thing that we need the most, and the thing that the world around us needs the most, is Jesus. Because it's in Jesus that we will find an identity that not, is not based on what we do, but is based securely in the work of Jesus. 
Now, Paul starts Ephesians chapter 2 in a pretty dark place, doesn't he? Right, when you read these words, he's using these words like sin and death and wrath and evil. Right? He really helps us get the sense of the depravity, how, thing, how bad things are. And in fact, he almost pushes it so hard that you could be reading this text and you could be like, All right, I knew I was bad, I didn't know I was that bad. Right? It's, it's almost as though it just compounds and keeps getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And he knows, he wants to make sure we realize the depth of the problem. And he does this because he knows that it's only once you realize how big the problem is that only then will you realize how incredible God's grace is. He knows that once you deal with the diagnosis, it's only then that we can get to the remedy. And so he's going to push, and he pushes hard. Because he knows once he goes there, he will uncover something that exposes to you where the problem lies. I recently learned about an article in the New York Times. It, it came out in the 90s to, talking about a new therapy that, that therapists were discovering. And, and it's really fascinating because what, what they were discovering at that time is, is that they, they were working with a number of different people they were counseling. And what they discovered was that if they wanted to help people overcome their issues, they needed to press in and help them discover the shadow side to them. That they understood, no matter how good a person was, that if they, if they really dug in, that deep inside, that there's this dark side in all of us. And that only when you realize and are honest about the shadow side, only then can you actually overcome your problems. Now that, that's non-Christian therapists writing about what they discovered was necessary to overcome problems. And how fascinating is it that the Christian church has been saying the same thing for thousands of years? Because as Christians, what Paul is trying to encourage us that is once you, it's only when you deal with the weight and the gravity of the problem that you can ever realize what the solution is. It's only once you deal honestly with the fact of how bad you really are that you can realize what God can do and you can't do. And while we may, not, may, while we may look to a different solution than those therapists did, what, what we all have learned is that it's only when you deal with what's deep in here that you can look to the only one who can do, do the work that's needed to help us overcome that problem. And so Paul writes, here is the, the sin, here is, are the, is the problem. And he uses this phrase just to make sure, if you weren't, if you weren't clear because of all the variety of ways that he listed out, he, he list, uses this one phrase that I think sums it up perfectly. And he says, you're dead in your transgressions and sins. See, that, that is very clear because from a very young age, what you learn is dead is dead. Right? You learn once you're dead, you can't do anything. When you're a little kid, you know death is bad news. And so when Paul says you're dead in your transgressions, nobody has any questions whether or not this is good news or bad news. Right? No, dead is dead. And once you're dead, you can't do anything. You can't choose anything. You can't you can't commit to anything. Once you're dead, you're dead. There's no way out of being dead. And so what Paul's doing here, when, it, when he says you're dead in your transgressions and sins, he's building on what we learned last week. Because dead people don't choose anything. 56 billion people die every year. 
Do you know how many of those dead people choose to come back to life? None of them. Right? This is not a red pill versus blue pill scenario where you just need to pick the right path. No, because when you're dead, you're not choosing one way or the other. When you're dead, there's only one way out of being dead, and that's to find someone who has power over death. There is only one way to no longer be dead. And what we often do as Christians, we treat the Christian life as though we're in the morgue, and now it's our job to find our way out. But there's only one way out of the morgue, and it's not you. When you're dead, there is only one way out. And that's the God who raises the dead. Now, one of the descriptors of this being dead in sins, I think, is actually really helpful for us. But it's a bit of an unfamiliar word. And that would be that word transgressions. You see, Paul says we're dead in our transgressions and sins. And I usually will just use transgressions and sin interchangeably um, because they, they are pointing to the same kind of idea. But I think if we push into that word and unpack it a little bit, I, I think it's also a little bit helpful for us. Now, this is a, a Christian-y kind of word that we don't really use much in normal life. And so if you've grown up in the church, you've probably heard the word, you've probably read the word. Um, but if you've, if you've not grown up in the church, this is not a word you hear. Right? I, when my kids do something wrong, I don't tell them, all right, you've transgressed. Now, those other translations will, will also will translate this word as trespasses, which I think is a little bit easier. Um, but there's still very few places that we will use that word trespasses. We'll be familiar with it if we pray the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses. And so what we, what we see when we, when we hear this word, right, when we hear this word, dead in your transgressions or dead in your trespasses, I think it's helpful to look at the one place in life that we see that word commonly used still. Right? You, may, you may have seen this word as you've been driving up north. Right? As you're driving down the road, you look out at the forest and you see a sign right on some trees that says, private property, no trespassing. Now what, we know exactly what it means when we see that sign. We know the sign means don't go there. A trespass is going somewhere God doesn't want you to go. That's what it means when Paul says we're dead in our transgressions and sins. That's what it means when Paul says we're dead in our trespasses. It means we're dead because we've gone to the places that God says don't go. He says you've gone to those places, you, you, you saw the sign, and you went there anyways. And he says it, it's killed you. And so when we read the, these descriptions that Paul gives, when we read these, these words, where there's a reason why, why all these descriptors lead us to the same place. He says, you, you said you lived gratifying the cravings of the flesh. You were by nature deserving of wrath. See, when you look at the places that Paul describes where we go, where it becomes quite clear that the trespass is going to a dangerous place. Because when we trespass, what we are doing in that moment, we're going somewhere God told us not to go, and he told us not to go there because it's not safe. See, God's not putting up the sign saying don't, don't trespass because he wants to rob your joy. He puts up the signs because he wants to protect it. 
He wants what is best for you. He wants what is, what is most life-giving for you. And those places, when you have gone to the places that God says don't go, what, what you'll find in those places is they're not giving you life, they're taking it away. Or th- think about your own life. What are the places where your mind has gone that, they shouldn't, that it shouldn't go? What are the places where your mind went to a place that you know that, that, if, if, that if, if those thoughts were listed out for us to see, that you know that you would run out of this room because you know that that is not a God-honoring place? What are those places? Now, when you went to those places, did those places give you life? Or did it steal it from you? What about the times when your words have gone to places that, that you know that God wouldn't want you to go? That you were, having, you, you were having, having a fight with somebody maybe you loved, and you knew where the line was, but you knew that in order to win the fight, that you had to cross the line. And so you, you won the fight, right? You, you, you won the argument, but you also knew you crossed the line that you shouldn't go. You went somewhere that God said you shouldn't go. Now tell me, is that when you went to that place, did that, did that actually give life to those relationships or did it take it away? When you've rebelled against God in any way, in your thought, in your word, in your deed, when you have gone to those places, did it ever give you life? Now, it might be fun when you step your foot first into the forest, right? Because there's risk, there's unknown, there's a sense of maybe that this will be an adventure. But it doesn't take long to get into the forest and realize you now have no way out. And God put up those signs saying, do not trespass. Why? Because he was protecting you from that. But here's the incredible thing about the love of God that Paul makes clear to us. When you have gone to the places God says don't go, Jesus goes in after you. And it is a dangerous place, but, but Jesus doesn't care about the risk because he goes in after you knowing it might cost him his life, but as long as, as, long as he saves yours, it's worth it. And so when you go to the places that God says you shouldn't go, Jesus goes in after you, giving up his life so that he can give you life. And so Paul says, you were dead. You used to live that way. You were gratifying the cravings of the flesh. You were by nature deserving of wrath. That's who you were, but that's not who you are. That is what you've done, but that doesn't define you. That is where you've gone, but that's not where you are right now. Because Jesus has gone after you. Because Jesus has robbed the grave. Because when you were on your deathbed, Jesus brought you back to life. That's the promise of Jesus. And so Paul says, but... But because of his great love for us, not our great love for God, not our commitment to God, but because of God's great love for us, not because you finally became a good person, not because you finally stopped going to those places, but because of his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, meaning his mercy isn't going to run out. You can't out the mercy of God. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. 
even when we were dead in transgressions, even when we were dead because we went to those places, even when we sentenced ourselves to death, Jesus, while we were still sinners, while we were still there, that's when Jesus gave his life to us. And Jesus gave his life and died so that you and I might have life. And so that when we were dead, now the promise that Jesus rose from the dead gives even new power. Because if Jesus raised from the dead, that also means he can raise you from the dead when you are dead in your trespasses and sins. And so Paul makes it so clear to us. If you thought things were bad, the work of Jesus is even better. If you thought you were worse than you could imagine, God's grace is even bigger than you could have dreamed. And so Paul helps us deal with what's in here. He helps us deal with what's in our hearts so that when we look to God, we know that this is not, there's nothing in here we can brag about. There's nothing here we can boast. There's nothing here that we could do for God that would make it us good enough. And instead he says, look to Jesus alone. He says, you may have so many things in your life that you want to undo, and you can't. You may have so many things that you wish you never said, so many things that you wish you never did, so many times that you went to the places that you knew that they were a bad idea. And Paul says, you can't undo those. But then he makes it clear, it's not yours to undo. And so Paul, step by step by step, Shows God's grace undoing every sin, every failure, every act of rebellion that we've ever done. In the same way that the sins compound and build upon each other in the beginning, God's grace does so even more. And so Paul shows us that we began dead in our transgressions and sins, but we end alive as a new creation. We begin walking in the ways of the world, but by the end, we're walking in good works that God prepared for us. We begin with evil at work in our own disobedience, but by the end, we're boasting in Christ's obedience. We begin trapped in our own flesh and thoughts, but at the end, we we rely on God's gifts, independent of our own flesh and thoughts. We begin deserving wrath, but by the end, we're receiving grace. Jesus undoes every failure and rebellious act of man with the cross. That the cross is God's way of going to places that none of us could ever go because he needed to go after you when you went places you shouldn't go. The cross is God's solution. That when you have gone to those places, Jesus went in after you and he went in after you giving his life. So that while you were dead, while your life was lost, that the God of the universe would give his life for you. And that when he rose from the dead, that he brought you back to life with him. Let's close with a prayer and have an opportunity to to confess before God, to be honest about the times and the places we've gone where God says don't go. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you for your word that you speak to us, that you have your way in us, and that as you do so, you expose to us things about ourselves that sometimes we want to keep hidden, sometimes things that we are just waiting to get off our chest. And God, we just ask that you help us be honest about those places today, that you show us those places where we've looked for an identity that isn't in you, 
those times where we've looked for our identity and the things that people say about us or the things that we do, the relationships we have, the things we've experienced. We ask that you have mercy on us and and to remind us where our identity lies. We ask that you help us be honest about all the times we've gone places we shouldn't go. That in our mind, in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, that we've crossed lines that we know weren't good for us. So we ask that, that you help us be honest about those, about the damage that's been done, about the hurt that's been caused. And in that honesty, God, we ask that you hear us, that you have mercy on us. And God, we thank you because of the incredible promise that while we confess those to you, it's not a confession that we do wondering how you respond, but it's a, it's, a, it's a request that we make in confidence, knowing how you promise to hear and forgive. And so hear us now in these moments as we personally confess to you our own sins and trespasses. of Jesus to you is you can't out his mercy. No matter what place you have in your mind, no matter what places you have gone, no matter how far you've gone, no matter what damage it's caused, no matter how often you've gone there, Jesus in his great mercy goes after you. That when you were losing your life, when you were losing your peace, when you were losing your joy, Jesus gives his life to you. And so that while your life was lost, Jesus raises you from the dead. And Jesus speaks to you today the promise that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.